In addition to answering phones, making appointments, and taking messages, receptionists serve a vital role in the operations of an office. In her memoir, aptly titled The Receptionist, An Education at the New Yorker, Janet Groth recounts her year at the New Yorker on the 18th floor, from 1957 to 1978. We had a chance to sit down with Janet to talk about her time at NYU and her new book. If you could start talking a little bit about your NYU experience. My NYU experience is I was trying to remember just how I began my first course, and I, I almost think it was the brother of Leonard Michaels, the novelist, who, whom I knew. I knew his brother and Leonard very, very uh, tangentially, but David uh, had been at the University of Minnesota, and he had come out and taken M.L. Rosenthal's course in Yates and Elliot, which at one time was a very, very famous course. And uh, he said, you have to, I don't care whether you're going for a degree or not, you just have to sign up and take this course. And that was my first course at uh, in the Graduate School of Arts and Science. Hmm. And do you have any specific, any professors who had an influence on you while you were at NYU? Well, certainly I've just named one. Uh, Rosenthal became my dissertation director, and he was very instrumental in in riding herd on me, being very rigorous about the Edmund Wilson dissertation, which later won a prize in the Northeast MLA contest and started me off on my scholarly publications. So it was very lucky. To, uh, to have had that. I, uh, let me see, I had, um, I had a number of professors all, uh, sadly, uh, gone from the scene now. Professor Buckler in Victorian, and uh, wasn't there a Gordon Ray who was teaching 19th century? Um, I took some Jane Austen, I took, and I took a lot of, uh, of modern uh, drama from Robert Corrigan, who was starting the school, what became the Tisch School of the Arts. I think that, that probably sets us off. That's great. Right. Um, and when did you get the idea to write The Receptionist? Were you writing about experiences while you were there, or is this something that you just pulled from memory? I thought, well, at the time that I was undergoing all of those uh, periods of alienation from my own feelings that I was writing fiction, that I was somehow in uh, joining the legions of would-be fiction writers who took for whom it's really a lightly veiled autobiography. And I was filling blue notebook after blue notebook with through all of those very trying times, putting them in the bottom of the drawer somewhere, and they all always followed me as I tra trailed around the country teaching here and there, and uh, this was, of course, long after I'd left the magazine, The New Yorker. And it was not until I'd, uh, my, my collaborator, David Castronovo, and I felt that we had really run the string out on our Edmund Wilson books. We'd, we'd covered everything from his personal letters to uh, his love life and that it was time to go on. He went on and wrote a wonderful couple of books about uh, literature uh, in America in the 50s, Beyond the Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, and, and the Bad Boys of British Literature, the uh, British Lit of the 50s. He, was, he called that blokes. Anyhow, uh, as David Castronovo went on, I thought, well, it's time for me to go on, and I wonder what's in those blue notebooks that I haven't looked at for years. And that's, that was really the genesis. 
Of course, they took a lot of... They, they, I, all I had to do was to inject them with the feeling and perspective and the wisdom and the maturity of my years. <laughs> and were there stories that you had included or wanted to include that just didn't make it because... Well, I, I, I was able to include a great many stories that would have had to be fictionalized because I felt that uh, the, the people now dead would not, uh, would not matter or there wouldn't be feelings to be hurt or uh, uh, some other objection to my talking about it. Mm-hmm. So that liberated me considerably. You just have to outlive them all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you were working at the New Yorker while you were going to school at NYU majoring in 20th century British and American literature. That's correct. You've looked at my transcript. <laughs> it's pretty good, isn't it? And um, what about those six credits from Oxford? <laughs> so so it must have been wonderful to be studying, doing this work, and then working with people that you were, you know, Indeed, doing. indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, for a long time, I was searching for a dissertation subject. And, and uh, in the days when I began... There was a little um, stricture on not writing about living authors, mm-hmm. and so I was looking into uh, various things. Of, uh, uh, I remember having asked about John Barrowman, who had tragically died, and uh, uh, he was pretty well covered. Mm-hmm. He, uh, there were lots and lots of dissertation bells that had gone off all over the country at the time of his uh, a, a tragic death. And then I was talking with one of the women who I sometimes had a, an end of the week drink with over at the uh, CUNY Graduate Center, uh, which was right across the, the street from the offices of the New Yorker. Perhaps I oughtn't to mention CUNY, but never mind. We had a drink there, and she and I said, I just am looking for the right dissertation subject. And she said, Why don't you write about Edmund Wilson? Mm-hmm. And thereby hung the tale. Huh. So you came to New York from the Midwest, and your parents owned a movie theater. Uh, in very formative years, when I was most impressionable, there we were, and there I was, seven nights a week, running the popcorn concession. Beautiful popcorn, little white Japanese curdles, 10 cents a bag. And after I finished cleaning up the machine, I could always go in, and they were just probably running the short subject at that point. Mm-hmm. So I always saw the feature film over and over again, and they were films, lots of them, uh, black and white films that have become famous as film noir, and many of them began with an aerial shot over lower Manhattan. I just knew that was where life began. Once you got to New York City, I'm curious to know what your reaction was. Did it live up to its portrayal on the screen? Yes, I had made an uh, early uh, visit with my uh, high school journalism class, one of those Washington, New York bus train trips that uh, involve a lot of uh, trooping around in in not very sophisticated looking groups. But I was at that time thrilled with what I saw because I recognized it from the movies. Mm-hmm. and. Um, and so that, that only confirmed me in my destination. And the grittier and the more uh, pieces of uh, uh, soiled newsprint that used to be whipped up by the wind in the days before Mayor Giuliani and, and later uh, our, our current mayor cleaned up the city, uh, the more I liked it. I seemed to like that old gritty New York. One of the things that is mentioned in the book is that Arthur Getz hired you to sit for him for paintings, and one of them turned out 
on one of the covers. Yes. What was it like seeing yourself? Well, that was a thrill. That was so, of course, nobody but people who were around the office would recognize that I was the model. But anybody who saw my little top knot, which I still wear, (laughs) and at that time I often had one of those little poppet pearl things around it, and and that's what gets used. So, of course, it was me, beyond a doubt. (laughs) And I was sitting in in the ticket booth of a movie theater, which my father thought was simply wonderful. And while you were there, I mean, you in the book, you talk about your travels and the house sitting and the tickets, the, all the perks that you would get. Were, were there any, any ones that really stand out for you? That Oh, well, let me think now. Um, the, my love of opera, which had been engendered some time before by the, uh, the man I call my sophisticator-in-chief, Frank Cucci, who had taken me to the old Met to hear Maria Callas in Tosca, which has become famous to opera lovers all over the world. I, I later, in the new Met, um, got a, a, a wonderful seat in the third row aisle next to the New Yorker music critic because Mrs. Sargent, the critic at that time was Winthrop Sargent, and uh, Mrs. Sargent, who was an artist and in, interested in visual arts, not at all interested in opera, said, oh, well, take Jan. She loves it. <laughs> so that's how I got to all the things at the, at, the, at the Met. Pretty nice. And many, many other nice things like that. You saw and interacted with a number of people uh, on the 18th floor. Is there, was there one specific encounter with someone who you admired so much that just you remember being in, in awe? When they came up? Well, there was a pretty spectacular moment when J.D. Salinger came down from upstairs and asked for the Coke machine, and I had to disappoint him, telling him, odd as it may seem, the New Yorker did not possess a Coke machine. (laughs) And... um, and while he was getting used to that uh, information, and uh, somehow the word percolated, people started coming out of their doors. At least one person, I think it may have been um, someone he knew slightly. It may have been someone like uh, A.J. Liebling. I just can't remember who it was, but they had greeted him and said, "What are you? What brings you to New York?" And he did a little fudging at that point. He was at work on the last thing that went through the magazine, that not very good prep school thing called Hopwood, I think it was called. Anyway, he and Mr. Sean were, uh, we later found out, spending weekends in one of the empty offices on the 18th floor, sequestered behind uh, closed doors, and working out of a kind of cardboard-sided suitcase full of full of manuscript and going over it in minute detail but what he said to the to to the polite inquiry was that he had just come to town to take his children to visit their grandmama over on Central Park West he just couldn't have been more the ordinary guy (laughs) after you left the New Yorker you began teaching I had begun teaching long before. In fact, okay. my long trek toward toward the uh, Ph.D. really began when sometime after the master's degree, um, because that first course in Yates and Elliot just kind of led, one thing led to another, and the next thing I knew I had enough credits mm-hmm. for the master's. And at that point, someone said, we need a... a uh, 
a teacher of composition out in Queensborough Community College. Do you want to do that? Not realizing that it would be midsummer, I would take us two subway trains and a bus to the end of the line uh, to get there. But never mind, I did it. I got into my first classroom situation. I thought it was thrilling. I loved the dynamic. It was a great. It must have been in 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 1970, mm -hmm. and uh, the. Uh, incursion into Laos was just heating up the whole um, anti-war movement again. And there were veterans from uh, Vietnam in the class. And there were little girls with pink hair ribbons who were just, who were the daughters of, of cops out in, um, in Queens somewhere. And they were all fighting and arguing with each other in my composition class. <laughs> it was delightful, it was wonderful. Huh. So, oh, oh, excuse me. And then no. I just I said to the to the chair of the department, "How do you get to do this all the time?" He said, "Well, you're going to need a PhD." <laughs> so, did working at the New Yorker influence the way you teach at all? I think it did because well, it certainly influenced the jobs that I got. Just the mystique of the New Yorker. You could have been cleaning floors there for all anybody knew. If you had the New Yorker on your resume, I was teaching courses, you should excuse it, in magazine article writing. Mm -hmm. uh, because, well, there and I did know something about magazine article writing, to tell <laughs> you the truth. And I, I never had any complaints about my students, many of whom went on to, to place articles that they'd written for me in magazines. Oh, that's great. And what advice do you give to your students who want to become writers? Oh well, the same old keep 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 writing right through your blocks, right through your uh, uh, first drafts and your third drafts, and keep rewriting, and uh, and it never hurts to uh, meet your deadlines. How did working at the New Yorker change you as a person? Well, you know, I, yes, it's an interesting question, and I'm, I'm sure, for the in the first few years, we have to say that it was not in the, in a particularly, uh, good direction. Not that it was the New Yorker's fault. It was the, it was my low self-esteem problems coming, coming out of a very small farming community in northern Iowa, where I was born. I had, I, I was just. Uh, I felt that I had nothing to stack up against these eastern seaboard people. I uh, was completely in awe of them. And what happened was that every time I felt bashful, I would put on one more affectation. And you couldn't have talked to me in those days without thinking, what a phony. What a complete phony. So that was the direction that the New Yorker changed me in in the beginning. And it wasn't just the New Yorker, it was what other people thought of when they thought of the New Yorker. Mm -hmm. Actually, all around me, they were perfectly genuine, ordinary, wonderful people whom I, I little by little began to realize were no different from the people in the farming community mm -hmm. and I with. They just lived in a different place. And if you only listened and talked and got real, um, the situation would improve greatly. Mm -hmm. So I like to think I was a better person for that. Yeah. Well, the stories are really great, and I really enjoyed the book. Evan, and, it's uh, very nice to talk with you, you about it. In. You're welcome. The Receptionist, an education at The New Yorker, is now available where books are sold.